Today's scripture is from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was, Martha, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. So, excuse me, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated at, in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God... God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, 
Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let us today hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> the humanity of our Lord Jesus is an incredibly precious gift. Uh, the passage before us, this whole chapter, reveals the truth of Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Only God can save brothers and sisters. But he doesn't deliver us from afar. Okay, shat shattering the prison walls of our slavery to sin and death was, as it were, an inside job. As the prophet Isaiah says, he draws near to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. He rescues us by becoming one of us. To work a salvation we could not work for ourselves, culminating in his death on the cross. And there, in a climactic sense, he atoned for the iniquity of all who looked to him for salvation. But, listen, Scripture does not separate the atoning merit of his death from the atoning merit of his life. Jesus didn't begin carrying our griefs and sorrows the moment the nails pierced his hands. As if the previous 33 years were just a moral instruction inspiring warm-up act <laughs> for the real work of redemption. Jesus doesn't do warm-up acts, ever. From the moment he took his first breath until the day his eyes closed in death, he bore our curse and shared our suffering. His, his death on the cross was an experience of suffering like no other, but he began his atoning work from the moment of his conception. Okay, experiencing the, the full range of sinless human emotions as he lived and loved in a broken world. One of the things I love about the Gospel of John is how in a wonderful way, John just takes a baseball bat or a hammer or your favorite blunt object and just shatters paltry, trinket-sized notions of Jesus. <laughs> He's not just a mere man. John screams that. He's the all-glorious God. But at the same time, chapters like John 11, they, they guard us, oh, so helpfully, from dehumanizing the Savior. Okay, the, the love, compassion, grief, holy anger that the Lord demonstrates here in, in raising Lazarus from the dead reminds us of the parallel fullness of Jesus' humanity. He, he's not just the son of God, okay? He's the son of God incarnate. He's not just the word, John 1. He's what? The word made flesh. B.B. Warfield writes, reflecting on Jesus' humanity, 
He subjected himself to the conditions of our human life. That he might save us from the evil that curses human life and its sinful manifestation. When we observe him exhibiting the movements of his human emotions, we are gazing on the very process of our salvation. Every manifestation of the truth of our Lord's humanity is an exhibition of the reality of our redemption. In his sorrows, he was bearing our sorrows. And having passed through a human life like ours, he remains forever able to be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. You realize, you realize that only as such, only as that, only as fully God and fully man can can Jesus bridge the gap between God and man and give us life? He must be both. John 11 is all about experiencing resurrection life in Jesus. It's a real story, not a pretend story. Okay, Lazarus really walked out of a real tomb after being really dead for four days. Jesus raised him to life. But, but the point of the story, okay, isn't what happened to Lazarus. It's what Lazarus and Martha and Mary and the Jews' collective experience tells us about Jesus, okay? It's, the point of the story is a, is a spiritual invitation, a gracious word from our maker to, to join them in believing in Jesus that we might experience resurrection life in Jesus and through Jesus. To, to believe in Jesus is to experience resurrection life now and forever. That's the point of John 11. And, and though the circumstances of our lives, your life, my life, may be very different than what this family was navigating here, know this, the pattern, the nature of the Savior's work here is the same nature and pattern of the Savior's work today. He redeems our suffering for his glory and our good. He's still doing that. He summons our faith as he shares our sorrows. He's still doing that. And, and he defeats our foes by the word of his power. Jesus is still doing that. That's how he gives resurrection life to all who believe in him. So let's look at each one of those in turn, okay? First, how does he give us resurrection life? He redeems our suffering for his glory and our good. Think about this. All right, John 11 begins by introducing a new family to us. There's a couple important people you need to know. There's Lazarus and there's his sisters, Mary and Martha. They live in a, a village called Bethany, which is just outside Jerusalem. And verse three tells us that Lazarus is a close friend of Jesus. They refer to him as he whom you love. And in verse 5, John adds that Jesus loved the entire family. What's, why is that worth noting? Because Jesus tells us, John just goes here right up front, Jesus is not some sort of unfeeling specimen of masculinity. He, he's not a, a super soldier in the Avengers. He's a real man who had real friends Men and women alike notice that particular people whom he dearly loved. And one day, Lazarus becomes sick, which is no small thing uh, because in the first century, medical care was primitive at best. You didn't just go to patient first. Many people who got sick simply died. So verse three, look there. The sisters send to him to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They don't say exactly what they want Jesus to do. Do you notice that? But they don't need to. Why not? Because 
They're friends, right? They're on familiar terms. They clearly want Jesus to come and, and heal Lazarus, just like he just finished healing a blind man in John 9. It's obvious. And so the solution seems really straightforward. You know, we almost expect verse 4 to read, when Jesus heard it, he journeyed to Bethany to see and heal Lazarus. But that's not what happens. Look at verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Really? Well, knowing the rest of the story, because we just heard it read, what do, what do we know? We know Lazarus' illness will, will lead him through the valley of the shadow of death. Right? Death is a, it's a monstrous intrusion about to cause overwhelming grief, but we also know it won't get the final word. So Jesus promises up front, his illness won't ultimately lead to death. It's not going there. That's, that's not what this is after. Why illness? So Lazarus will die. No, look back at verse four. Where's all this going? What, what, what will his illness accomplish if not his death? Verse four, it is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Christian, if you are suffering with a bodily illness, there's a good chance that it feels very random. Maybe it even feels aimless. Maybe it feels like just the next saga in a spectacular run of bad luck. But the Savior begs to differ with your perspective. Okay, your illness, no, no less than Lazarus, has a guaranteed purpose and a guaranteed result. What is that? It, it exists for the glory of God. It's, it's not an aberration in his sovereign plan. It might be in yours, but it's not in his. He, he will exalt his name through your illness. How? <laughs> By proving the strength of his power, revealing the depth of his love and displaying the height of his wisdom. You, you might not see how right now. You may never understand how, but of this you can rest assured. There is nothing, absolutely nothing happening in your life or world or body that God will not use to magnify his glory in the earth. Nothing. That, that category doesn't exist in God's economy. And think about it, because there's no greater cause, there, there's no greater glory than God's glory, that means you could not ask for a bigger or better purpose for your suffering. Does, does that take the pain away? No. Does that make it easy to endure? No. But that, but that does mean that, that no matter what you feel or your doctor says, your broken body is never a pointless prop. It's an instrument of worship, friend. Even in its brokenness, it will ultimately serve to make much of Jesus. So don't, don't despise it. Don't disparage it. Don't desecrate it. Even, even when your body is ravaged by sickness, it is a chosen instrument of the glory of God. But, but here's the critical connection, okay? Because I can almost just sort of hear the objection or the follow-up to that. All right? Magnifying his glory through our suffering isn't, please hear this, just a good thing God does for himself. Okay? It's not like, well, at least if I'm going to have to draw the short stick and get the brain tumor, you know, somehow, some way, this will do good for God. Have fun with that, God. <laughs> 
Hope you enjoy that, God. Thanks for using me, God. No, it's not at all what Jesus is saying. Glorifying his name through your suffering, listen, is the kindest possible thing God could do for you, friend. For you. Notice the connection between verses five and six. This is the whole point. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What do you do when you love somebody? So, therefore, in light of that, as a result of his love, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Are you saying, Jesus, that you intentionally and deliberately delayed your response to their prayer, their request, because you love them. Yes. Why would the Lord do that? You ever ask that question? Look at verse 14. A few days later. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. You realize he's answering that question. Think about it, okay? What what governed the timing of the Lord's journey to Bethlehem or to Bethany? What, What prompted him to choose to wait knowing full well that if he waited, two things would happen. Lazarus would die and his entire family would be overwhelmed with sorrow. What what gave Jesus the audacity to say, I'm not sorry I failed to show up. I'm glad I waited. And I'm not talking, notice, about gladness for my sake, though I will be glorified. I'm talking about gladness for your sake. What? (laughs) Listen to the Apostle Peter speaking of our future salvation. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus says the exact same thing in verse 15. Look there again. I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. What are are Peter and Jesus both saying? They're on the same page. It's just the page we're not often on with them. (laughs) What are they saying? They're, They're saying that there is something incredibly immeasurably better in this life than physical health. What's that? It's the exceedingly great soul-satisfying pleasure of relationship with God through faith in Jesus. He created you for that, friend. there's, There's no greater joy in this life than the joy of coming to know God as you learn to trust God. Hebrews 11, verse six, for whoever would would draw near to God, Whoever would enjoy God, whoever would experience his presence, whoever would know life with God must what? Must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There is no enjoying God apart from faith in Jesus. And so if enjoying God 
is our highest and greatest good, then faith in Jesus is the kindest thing God could ever work in your heart and life. But we don't often think that way, do we? What do I mean by that? I mean that many times the most unloving thing God could do for you is give you exactly what you want. God, I don't want to grow in trusting you. I don't want to grow in knowing you. I don't want to discover the joy of leaning the weight of my life on you when every other foundation has crumbled. I don't want Jesus. I just want a body that works. I want a husband who listens to me. Kids that are following you. And a little money in the bank, okay? If, if you want to strengthen my faith along the way, have at it. But you better deliver in the end or I'm not going to be happy. I mean, we don't, we don't, most of us, have the audacity to actually talk aloud to God like that, right? But, but isn't that so often what our, our grumbling and our complaining and our suffering reveals is actually going on on the inside? You know? It just exposes our idolatry. That's what's up. S- saying, think about this, saying, God, I'll trust you if you give me what I want is no different than saying, God, I'll worship you if you first join me in worshiping something else. Friends, Jesus can say this no better way. Jesus loves you too much to play along with that nonsense. He loves you too much. He loves you too much to play along with that which is one of the main reasons he leads us through experiences of suffering. If you're in Christ, it's not punitive. It's a loving act of formative discipline. But the very situations, here's the reality, the very situations that we take and we throw back in God's face as signs that he doesn't love us are actually his chosen means of deepening our relationship with him, strengthening our trust in him, and teaching us that we can really believe his promises and really stand on his word for the sake of his glory and your good. He loves you too much, so many times, to give you what you want. Because he knows that sturdy faith in him is more precious than gold, as Peter says. And everything else that looks like gold to us, that we hold dear. Why why is sturdy faith so precious? Because it's the secret to everlasting joy with Jesus. Now and forever. And and Jesus specializes. You want to know what he's really good at? He's really good at strengthening our faith through situations that make no sense to us. You know how you often, if you're physically sick, you might look for a, a medical specialist? You know, I've got this particular problem. I want a specialist. What is, think about this, what does what Jesus specialize in? What's he just so exceedingly good at? My, my dad who just retired is exceedingly good at pediatric gastroenterology. What is the Lord exceedingly good at? He's a specialist. He specializes in using suffering to strengthen our faith so that we will experience joy in Jesus. That's the plaque on the wall of his office. He redeems our suffering for his glory and our good. Here's the second way he gives us resurrection life. Jesus summons our faith as he shares our sorrows. Moving on in the story, when, when Martha learns that Jesus is on his way to Bethany, she runs to meet him. 
goes looking, and when she finally sees him, she cries out. Look in verse 21. Lord, if you had been there, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. What, what's she saying? What's well, actually kind of complicated. Okay, her, her posture toward the Lord is twofold. Okay? First, she, she's lamenting the gap between what she wanted Jesus to do and what Jesus actually chose to do. Do you see that? She's, she's pouring out her sorrow to the Lord. That's the if you had been there, but you weren't. So I'm grieving. But even her lament springs from a root of faith in Jesus. Notice that. It's, it's, it's woven deep into the fabric of her grief. Lord, if you had been here, what? My brother would not have died. Do you realize that's, that's an implicit declaration of confidence in Jesus' power to heal, isn't it? What's the point? That genuine faith in Jesus often increases the grief that floods our soul in the midst of suffering. Why? Because it, what genuine faith in Jesus, it widens the perceived gap between the blessing we believe he could have wrought and the suffering he chose to permit. But, but Martha doesn't despair in that gap. She laments it, she doesn't despair, nor, notice, does she charge Jesus with unkindness or injustice. Verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. D- despite all the perplexing anguish that's flooding her soul with the Lord's delay, she doesn't stop believing in Jesus. Why not? Because her faith is not a signs faith which isn't real faith. What, what's science faith? Well, because you didn't heal him, I'm not sure I trust you anymore. You see? That's science faith. No, her faith is the genuine article. It's grounded in who Jesus is, not what he's done for her lately that she can see. Even now, Lord, she says, even now, I know you're the one who intercedes for me before the Father. Even now, your power's undiminished. You're still my only hope, Jesus. I still trust you. And and when Martha expresses her hope for a future general resurrection of the just at the end of the age, which was the hope of all the saints of old, Jesus takes her further up and further in. Look at verse 25 heart of the whole passage. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's one of those passages preachers read quickly because it's contradicting itself. And if I go fast, you won't notice it. No, 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 no. The Savior's not contradicting himself, okay? He's saying two things are true for everyone who believes in Jesus. What are those? First, he promises life in a future physical sense. When the Lord returns to make all things new, Christian, though you have physically died, you will receive a resurrection body. (laughs) Some of us are really looking forward to that. First thing he's saying is that physical life after physical death is your inheritance. Here's the second thing. He's promising present and future life in a spiritual sense. So first he promises future life in a physical sense, but he's also promising present and future life in a spiritual sense. What's he mean by that? If you are believing in Jesus, if your faith is in Jesus, then Christian, right now, you get to experience abundant life with Jesus. Okay, a taste of heaven on earth. Right now, right now, you get to experience the joy of living under the favor of God. Okay, the joy of knowing God and loving God and and serving God. But notice, 
Neither one of those experiences, future physical, present spiritual, and future spiritual, of resurrection life, come our way automatically. All the resurrection life that is found in Jesus, present and future, is the exclusive reward of faith in Jesus. Notice, please, Jesus does not say, Martha, do you believe? That would be very trendy today. Are you a person of faith? Do you have some sort of generic confidence, Martha, that everything will work out in the end? Have you heard that? Maybe, maybe that's what you think even right now. That's, that's not what Jesus says. He's, he's not inviting Martha to just embrace the power of positivity or to send out good vibes into the universe. He says, do you believe this? What's the this? Do you believe the specific words I have just spoken to you, Martha? That resurrection life is found in me and me alone. Martha, do you believe the gospel? Do do you believe the good news? That's what gospel is, good news. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved? Martha, do you believe that? Do you believe this? Verse 27, her reply to Jesus' invitation, his summons, is a poignant declaration of real faith. Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. She said, yes, I do believe that, Jesus. In the the very, but keep the context in view, right? It's not like, oh, and I'm just an optimistic person. I always believe Jesus. No, no. In the very moment when sorrow threatened to overwhelm her soul, Jesus leaned in and said, I'm so sorry. No, he summoned her faith. He loved her by calling her to faith, by pointing her to the Lord. And Mary responded by affirming her trust in the Lord. Follow her example, friends. But notice, that's not the only way Jesus cared for this family. Okay? When her sister Mary falls at Jesus' feet weeping a few moments later, she says the same thing Martha said. Look at verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same lament. But in Mary's case, there's, there's no concurrent declaration of confidence. See? She doesn't pull a Martha. Nevertheless, I know that, no, faith is present in her lament, no less than Martha's, but the dominant emotion for Mary is overwhelming sorrow. That's just where she is. Look at verse 33. Notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't doesn't admonish her to be more vocal about her faith. Hey, Mary, Martha wrote a book. You should read it. (laughs) No. There's, There's no patronizing Oh, Mary, I know it's hard to be a finite creature who can't see how this will work out in the end for good, but I see. No. Nor is Jesus unmoved because he very well knows the miracle he's about to perform. Mary, perk up. Just wait. Just wait. Here, dry your eyes. No, the the suffering that grieved her heart grieved his too. And and Jesus doesn't just enter into or, or sympathize with her plight. He actually shares her sorrow. Look, when Jesus saw her weeping 
and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And a few moments later, tears began to roll down the face of God. But I thought he was an unfeeling sovereign sitting in the heavens. Where'd you get that idea? Does an unfeeling sovereign who winds the world up and then lets it spin off into whatever paths it wants to go become God incarnate to weep with you? Where'd you get that idea of God? It's not the gospel. It's not Jesus. Grief is the fruit of holy love, brothers and sisters. And it's also a humble act of protest because godly sorrow at root says what? What's godly sorrow say through tears? It says, things are not supposed to be this way. Not supposed to be this way. The parents should not have to bury their children. Okay, marriages are not supposed to end in divorce. Sex should not be weaponized through abuse. A human being shouldn't be murdered in the womb or derided because of the color of his skin. And as Christians, we of all people, arguably have more cause for grief than anyone else on planet earth. Why? Because we know the goodness of God's original creation. We know the goodness of his design and, and our knowledge of that, it just compounds our sorrow, widens the gap created by all that has gone wrong. And let me just quickly apply this to some of my brothers here, okay? Guys, grief is part of what it means to be a godly man. Some of you need to hear that. I'm not talking about pastor wants me to have a soft side. No. Pastor wants me to let a tear fall now and then. No. No. Okay. Jesus was the manliest man that ever lived. Do you agree with that? Okay. If Jesus wept over the brokenness of the world, why are you not? What is godliness, brothers, if not thinking what God thinks after him and feeling what God feels after him? If he wept, we should weep too. Grief is not beneath the dignity of God. It's a precious expression of our Lord's humanity. And it's a powerful reminder that we are never alone in our suffering. Okay, that the Lord's emotional life stands as a witness that whenever you taste the brokenness of this fallen world on the path of obedience to Jesus and, and sorrow floods your heart, our Lord's emotional life testifies that he who loves you weeps with you too. He's, he's moved by compassion. But he's also moved by righteous anger. When John says, look at verse 33, and again in verse 38, same word both times, that Jesus is deeply moved. That's one word in the original language. He's not talking about some sort of extreme form of grief bordering on despair. Like, like Jesus is, oh, he's deeply moved. He's spiraling out of control. <laughs> or, or he's at his wit's end emotionally. The, the underlying word, it's easy to miss this in English. It has a strong element of inward fury. Of being vehemently and strongly against something. I'm against that. John Calvin's words, it's a combination of sorrow and anger I love this phrase, over the violent tyranny of death. B.B. Warfield observes, it is death that is the object of his wrath. 
behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he came into the world to destroy. Not not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites on our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression and under the impulse of these feelings, he has wrought out our redemption. How do we know that? How do we know that? Because the Savior who weeps with us doesn't stop with sharing our sorrows. He continues to the tomb. He advances to the tomb. He says, verse 39, with eyes filled with tears, take away the stone. That's that's the holy God laying down the gauntlet. It's battle time. Point three. How does Jesus give us resurrection life? He defeats our foes by the word of his power. We'll end with this. I wonder, look at verse 39. If you can identify with some of the Jews' questions. I certainly can. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I mean, I don't think that's as much cynicism as it is just plain old confusion, you know? Jesus, you healed him. Why not Lazarus? Well, it's clearly not due to a lack of power. That that much would soon become abundantly clear. Remember, Jesus was compelled by love. For the sake of their joy, he was what? More committed to strengthening their faith than he was sparing their suffering. He knew there was something they needed immeasurably more than a comfortable life. They needed to know and trust Jesus because what? Knowing and trusting Jesus is the only way that we ever experience resurrection life. The life that's truly life. But his first steps in his plan make no sense to type A Martha. Look, when Jesus says, take away the stone, Martha pulls out, Lord. By this time, there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. This is not a very good plan. On multiple levels. You do realize that God, right? I mean, guys, what what do we say? But Lord, forgive us. What else can we say? For all the times we've done that, all the times God started to work in unexpected and painful ways in our life or our church or our country or our world or our hearts and, and our... Our first response is to fill out the annual evaluation. Found wanting. There are going to be so many times in your life, if you're a Christian, where obeying the Lord's commands means doing something that to you makes absolutely no sense. You realize that. It's kind of the difference between who's following who. You following Jesus or is he following you? And in those moments, friends, you need to cling to the truth of verse 40. Look there. Fix your eyes on that verse. Blazing this on the forefront of your mind. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? There's a connection here. Don't miss it. If you want to see the glory of God, if if you want your soul to be thrilled by experiences of a saving power in your life, what do you need to do? Oh, just wait, because it happens automatically. No, God will glorify his name, but you will not see his glory or experience his power unless you are willing to trust him. 
Unless you're willing to to believe his word and, and obey him accordingly. What Jesus told Martha and Mary to do was profoundly uncomfortable. It was countercultural. It made no sense. It even seemed borderline disrespectful. But they still obeyed. Will you? Are you? You do realize that Jesus didn't need them to roll away the stone so he could raise Lazarus, right? He's not looking for a sidekick here. So why does he ask him to do it? Because he had a bigger goal than raising Lazarus. What was his goal? To give Mary and Martha and the Jews and Lazarus and everybody watching this whole thing going down, resurrection life in their soul. How does God give resurrection life in the soul? By summoning us to faith in Jesus. What does faith always require? How is faith expressed? Through obedience. Some say, I have faith. Some say I have works. What does James 2 say? I will show you my faith by my works. So just imagine the moment. I mean, I am sure it smelled horribly. (laughs) Just, Just like Martha predicted. But then Jesus quietly prays. He's not a rogue agent. He's he's not a circus ringmaster looking to wow the crowd. He's an obedient son. He's a dependent son. He, He thanks the father for hearing him. He expresses his desire that all around him would believe that he's not just a miracle worker, that he's the sent one. The signs point to something far more important. He's the God in human flesh. He's the Messiah. Lord, do that today. Do that right now. Show them. Strengthen their faith. And then he stops praying. He doesn't keep praying the same prayers over and over again. He doesn't slash his body. He doesn't flagellate himself. He doesn't put more money in the offering basket. There's no smoke and mirrors. He doesn't do a magic ritual. He simply speaks into the darkness. Lazare! go. And Lazarus just walks out. And it's because it's not the first time creation had heard that voice. There was another darkness that that same voice spoke into and said, Let there be light. And the same voice that made something out of nothing now spoke to what was dead and made it alive. And his cold heart began to beat, collapsed lungs, decaying, filled with air. He he sat up, he arose, and he shuffled out into the light that only existed because one day it too obeyed the same voice. There's no hesitation. There's no fanfare. Jesus spoke. (laughs) Lazarus came to life. What what happens when you speak? (laughs) Think about that. What happens when you speak? When Jesus speaks, stars appear. When Jesus speaks, dead men walk out of tombs. When Jesus speaks, it is finished temple curtains tear from top to bottom and forgiven sinners find a new way to boldly approach the throne of God. When Jesus speaks, spiritually cold hearts awaken. Even though they've heard the same thing from their parents for decades, they awaken to new life. To trust and obey the Lord who died to set him free. And a day of judgment is coming when Jesus will speak to every man and woman who has ever lived. They will all be summoned from the grave by the sheer power of his voice. 
What happens when you speak? But here's the best news of all, friend. You don't have to wait until the final day to hear his voice for yourself. Because Jesus hasn't stopped speaking. When you open your Bible and read, powered by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the same voice still speaks to you. He's, you realize God is very much in a speaking kind of business. <laughs> it's what he does. And when we read his word, he, he speaks, not, not, not because in some sort of like mystical voice behind the page thing. No, <laughs> no. But, but through real words written by real people, inspired and illuminated by a real Spirit of God. Lazarus' physical death is a picture of your own spiritual death. And in the same way that Lazarus was powerless to raise his own physical body, you too are powerless to raise your spiritual soul to life. But the point of Jesus' miracle here is that he is more than able. He's more than willing. He already defeated your spiritual enemies of sin and death at the cross. All he requires, friend, is that you stop trying to save yourself and start trusting him to rescue you and bring you home to God. He's worthy of your trust because he defeats your greatest foe by the word of his power. He gave resurrection life to Lazarus in a physical sense. He gives resurrection life on the same day to all kinds of people in a spiritual sense. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And ultimately, that was Jesus' goal, right? Strengthening our faith in Jesus so that we could what? Experience resurrection life in Jesus. And he offers you the same life today, friend, if you're willing to join all of them in believing in him and to strengthen your faith. He's got something better for you than Lazarus' empty tomb. You know what he's got for you? He's got his own empty tomb. Because he didn't need someone else to speak to him after three days. Jesus, come out! He arose from the grave by the immeasurable, invincible greatness of his own eternal existence and power. Amen. If you want a life that endures, if you want a life that lasts, if you want resurrection life, friend, what are you doing mucking around in this world trying to create it for yourself we're demanding other people give it to you when you feel like a victim. To live in this life is to experience profound grief and sorrow and pain and abuse and hurt. But it is not to be abandoned by the God who sees and saves because he's not just fully God, he's fully man. And he came as a man to give you and me life by redeeming our suffering, summoning our faith, sharing our sorrows, and defeating our foes. And so I exhort you. On the authority of the word of God, stop trusting yourself. Start trusting Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I ask as we sing this song, our final response to what you have spoken to us today, that you would cleanse us from our idolatry, that you would cause us to see that knowing you by faith is to discover the pearl of great price, and that you would supernaturally increase our willingness to suffer whatever is necessary, that we might Know you, Jesus, and the power of your resurrection. Forgive our unbelief. Forgive our grumbling and complaining. Make us a people, especially when life makes no sense, who say with Martha, 
But even now, I know my God is alive.